Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series, the Book of Philippians, we'll explore the lessons we can learn from the Book of Philippians related around joy in the midst of suffering. So let's turn now to part one of this series, The Flourishing Finish Line. You know, about a month ago, I, um, I decided that I wanted to lighten the mood. That video was not the way to do it. Uh, <laughs> I know y'all who were gathered here didn't see it. Those who were gathered at home did. Uh, but the words in that uh, video are, uh, are parts of the, this letter that we're going to be looking at. And when I thought about this about a month ago, you know, I'd, I'd wanted to go a different direction with my teaching series uh, this fall. And I just kept being pulled back into Philippians. And honestly, the reason that I really was pulled back into Philippians, because I felt like we just need to laugh a little more in our lives. Maybe that's me. Maybe I'm too serious. Uh, most people have never described me as being a little too serious. But, you know, maybe, maybe I just needed some laughter. But I was like, we need to do something to talk about joy. And we need to lift the mood, you know. Uh, and I don't know if you agree with me or not. But honestly, every time I turn on the news, right, the, the phrase that comes to my mind every time I turn on the news, we've reached a grim new milestone. You've heard this? I don't know how many times I've heard a grim new milestone. I, it just completely obliterates whatever meaning we had of that phrase in the past. But that's our reality. We have this grim new milestone. You know, our president has reached the lowest uh, ratings of his entire career. I'm like, I think our presidents just consistently reach the lowest. That's all I ever hear about them. It doesn't matter who they are. They just reach the lowest ratings of their career. And now, of course... I mean, heaven forbid, but Gabby Petito, we don't, I don't, y'all don't even know who she is, do you? I, I didn't know who she was a couple days ago, right? But now we all know who Gabby Petito is, and Brian, Brian whatever, you know, like, how can, we, how can we do this? They're gone. They're just missing somewhere. And, and you know, it's just more and more. Start, in fact, I turned to TikTok, don't judge me for this, I turned to TikTok just to laugh, right? Like, that's what I do. And I turned it on yesterday. And wouldn't you know it, some story about Gabby Petito. I'm like, get off of my feet. That's not why I'm here, right? But we, we just need to laugh because everything is so serious, right? It's just everything is weighty and heavy and heavy. And, you know, we used to talk about the weather when we would meet somebody new. Now it's like, hey, how are you? I'm, I'm Sam. Like, who's in the hospital that you know, right? Like, that's, that's the course of our conversation because the world that we live in it's just so heavy. And so I thought, the more I thought about this in my planning, I was like, you know what? What I really want to talk about is joy in the midst of suffering. What does it look like to talk about joy in the context of suffering? And the funny thing is, and let me just clarify here, you know how some of your parents probably told you to never pray for patience? I would suggest that if you have the thought in your head to ever talk about joy in the middle of suffering, you just throw that thought away. Like, that's not what you should deal with. And, and I found that out this week in a very real way as I was studying for this. If you follow my wife's social media feed at all, uh, then you know last week my baby girl turned nine months old. Now, she was, for those of you who know us, our family, she was a preemie. She was born at 33 weeks, and uh, she was tiny, right? She just, her little head was like the size of a tennis ball. It just fit right in the palm of my hand. Uh, and we hit that nine-month mark. I took her to the doctor that day. I, I, I was so pleased because the doctor was like, she's great. Like, she is really phenomenal. Growing well, attentive, alert. She's got good motor skills, fine motor skills. She's great. And so I was so excited, and I went home, and I told Aaron, this, I'm not kidding. This is what I said. This is terrible. I should have never said this. 
or I should have had some wood to knock on. I was like, it looks like we defied the odds. And if you don't know, 50% of preemies make it back into the hospital before they turn a year old. And so at nine months, I was like, I think we beat the odds. Like, I don't think we're going to have to go back to the hospital. I think it's all going to be good. She's a fighter. She always has been. And I thought nothing more about it. And I went about my week, and I started this week kind of working through the book of Philippians, and I'm reading it. And, and if you're ever going to explore joy in the middle of suffering, this is your book right here. This is, this is where you need to land. You just need to read this book and read it and read it and read it. And in just a minute, of course, I'm going to read it uh, with us, and we're going to start into that. But as I spent some time in this book, I started exploring this idea. This is what was going on in my head. I started thinking to myself, is it even possible to find joy in suffering? Because a lot of times what we do is we have this sort of toxic positivity where we say everything is well. Southerners are great at this, right? We want to say everything is good, but that's a lie. It's not good. And so it's this form of toxic positivity that we put out there. And so what I wanted to suggest is, you know, is there really joy in the context of suffering? Is there really a way to do it? Is it possible? And if it's possible, the further question, and we'll explore this even more in the next few weeks, how is it possible? How is it possible that you can have joy? Like what practices can we commit to? What can we orient our lives around? And is it really joy that we're finding in those places when we do this? And this was the perfect letter to work through. You know, uh, if you know much about the Bible, two-thirds of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. Twelve, some say 13 letters in the New Testament are Paul's letters. And, and this is one of them. In fact, this is historically like the fourth one that he would have written. What's unique about this letter, the book of Philippians, is that it's a single, and you, you need to hold on to this bit of background information, it's one of four letters he wrote while he was in prison, right? which is a little bit ironic because, of course, the whole letter is surrounding this idea of joy, but it's one of four letters that he wrote in the context of prison, and I don't want you to let go of that idea right there, that single piece of background information, and so I, I'd spent my days reading this. I'd spent all week working through this, reading, praying, meditating on what he had talked about and somewhere Tuesday night into Wednesday, things started to change in my family's life. As I was spending my days reading through this epistle, things started changing at home, particularly started changing with my little girl. And uh, as many of you probably had nine-month-olds nine in your house, you know there's teething is a reality. And on Tuesday night, it was like my girl's nose turned into a faucet. <laughs> they were like, whoa, what's going on? It just running everywhere, right? She was, I had to give her a bath immediately. It's just snot everywhere. And we thought, well, she's just teething. It's fine. The next day, she wakes up. No more snot. She's got a little bit of a cough. I'm like, okay, that kind of settled quickly. Um, but whatever, it's just her teething. And then by Wednesday night, it was a little deep chest cough. And as she went to bed Wednesday night, she stopped eating. And she started having retracted breathing, which if you don't know what that is, it's on a baby, it's their, their, their uh, chest up around the collarbone starts to sink in and her belly starts to raise up. So it's really belabored breathing. And, and we were like, okay, well, she's just struggling a little bit. She'll make it through. And all night long, continued that way for us. Uh, and just like that, the next morning on Thursday, we get up, we test her oxygen, and she's down now about 88% oxygen. Her breathing is just outrageous. And we moved from a teething baby on Tuesday night to Thursday morning in the PICU at, at Levine. Not knowing what's going on, but seeing her completely helpless in terms of being able to breathe. And you know, it was in that moment that I realized I had a prison around me. Right? 
it was in that moment right there that my prison appeared and my test, my faith started to be tested in a very real way as to how we would respond in the context of this. First half of my week was study, and the second half of the week, God was like, hey, why don't you give this a try? Let's see what it's like. And I'm like, well, this stinks. That's what it's like. But either way, we get forced into this reality, and I want to talk, you know, I, I really did. I, I just want to talk about joy and, like, throw a few jokes out there and kind of be lighthearted, but, but God throws us into this situation and, and we have to start wrestling with how we can really find joy. And what I discovered over the course of my week is that the richness of our joy, the richness of your joy, the richness of any joy that you will ever experience in life is discovered at least in part in the tension of your suffering and the tension of your struggle. The joy, the real and abiding joy that God can give us in our lives is really found, highlighted, uh, sort of massaged out in the context of this struggle. And I had wrongly assumed, as I think most of us probably do, that those who are prepared most to talk about joy are those who are existing outside of struggle, right? They're those who are outside of all the pains. They're, it's kind of like, you know, you go to a, a food, uh, food line uh, to help the homeless, and it's like, I'm over here, I'll hand you the food. I'll give you what you need. I'm, I'm not in your situation, but I'll give it to you. And what I've discovered as I've gone throughout the week, coupled with Paul's testimony from Scripture, it's, it's those who actually struggle among us who are most prepared to talk about the fruits of joy. It's those who have experienced and are experiencing struggle in this moment that are most prepared. It's you who are right in the middle of it. You know, I know some of you are sitting here, some of you are watching online. You've got faces and images and names of people who have struggled during this pandemic, whether it has to do with the illness itself or the job loss or the, the frustration and the friction at homes, whatever it is, we know people who are struggling and that struggle hurts us. And we're in the middle of that. This isn't just a solo struggle, but it's a collective society struggle. And we all are living in that right now. And it's in the middle of that struggle, in the middle of that grief, in the middle of what John Chrysostom calls the dark night of the soul, that we can start to speak about joy. You can actually talk about it. You can live into you and experience it in a beautiful way. And I believe in a very real sense, this is, in fact, the power of Paul's epistle to you and me. This is what's going to come out for us as we read through his epistle. Yes, Paul was in prison, and it wasn't the worst time he ever experienced prison. Yes, he was being, he was being persecuted and tormented, but it wasn't the, the worst persecution that he had ever gone through. But the reality is, is when Paul put pen to paper and started writing this down, he didn't know that. He didn't know the outcome. He didn't know what would be on the other side. He didn't know what the next minute, the next hour, the next day, the next week. He didn't know any of those things and what they would bring in his life. But in the midst of his uncertainty, Paul understood two things very clearly that I think you and I need to remember as well. He knew that in the midst of suffering, joy is both real and it's communal. Joy is both real and it's communal. He could grasp that joy right now. It's not make-believe. It's not this toxic positivity that we see all around. And he could live into it. Because it was real, he could live into it, he could experience, and he could do what he did for you and me. He could share it. He could share that joy with anybody that he came in contact with. But not only was it real, but it was also communal, and that meant that he could live into his imprisonment because he wasn't alone there. He wasn't by himself. In fact, we see both of these things kind of playing out in the first few verses. So if you want to follow along at home, you'll see this on the screen. If you're here, you can follow along with me. We see this in the very first verse of the letter. Verse 1, chapter 1, Philippians, he says this, Paul and Timothy, 
servants of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just pause right there because so oftentimes we just assume Paul wrote this letter down. Right? Paul's the author of this letter. It's great. But Paul actually attributes authorship not only to himself, but Timothy. In fact, it could have been possible that Timothy is writing this down and Paul is dictating it or they're going back and forth. But either way, they are collectively writing this. And what's interesting about this right here is that this isn't the only time that Paul does this. Paul does this several times throughout his letters, but the majority of the time that he does it, he's in prison. He said he's got four letters he wrote from prison. Three out of the four of them actually have co-authorship between him and Timothy or him and Sylvanus and Timothy, but they all have this combination. And in fact, the one letter, Ephesians, that doesn't have joint uh, contribution, at the end of it, he says, oh, but there's somebody here with me. Right? So he has people in his life in the context of imprisonment. And as we look at this epistle, we see both his, the realness of his joy and we see the connection of his life. And for this morning, I just want to clarify one thing that Paul is pulling out for us. Because the verse says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the, the most of your translations will say bishops and deacons. It could just be pastors and helpers, whatever it is. But, but it's to everyone. But this isn't just a couple of you who've landed in prison. This isn't just to a couple of you who are struggling right now with illness or disease. It's not those of you who are grieving to everyone I'm writing this letter. And there's a reason that Paul wanted to address this to everyone. And in all likelihood, this letter originally went to Philippi and then it went to other churches as well. And the reason is because Paul firmly believed he's not the only one in prison. We all are in prison. Every one of us experience imprisonment in our lives. And part of what Paul is doing in this letter is helping us to see that. I mean, there there, as I said, are, are five of his letters that he addresses in this collective way between Paul and Timothy, and part of that's just fact. Hey, I want you all to know I'm not alone. But there's a part of it where he's saying, you are in imprisonment, and you are not alone. You're in imprisonment in your life, and you're not by yourself in that moment. He's teaching us that we are never alone in the struggle of our lives, even though we may all be in prison. Now, sometimes that prison has bars and concrete and big heavy doors. Sometimes that prison is weak lungs and trouble breathing. Sometimes it's unforeseen tragedies like bankruptcy or divorce or, or trial or, or a breakup or something like that. But we all live into that imprisonment in our lives. But for all of us, this is the commonality of our imprisonment. For all, the, all of us, all of the time, our imprisonment is time. It's time itself. All the time we are imprisoned by time. Think about this in terms of actual prison for just a minute. What's the first, one of the first questions that you would ask a prisoner if you met them, sitting across from them? How long are you in for, right? It's time, right? How long you got to do this? In fact, I just visited one of our prisoners here in Rutherford County a couple weeks ago, and for the first time that I met him, he's across from me. What's one of the first questions out of my mouth? How long are you going to be here, right? He went to his first court appearance. How long are they going to give you? That's, that's it. We want to know time. We, we are imprisoned by time in some way. And it doesn't matter if it's a real prison or not. The question that comes up to us is, how much time do I have? You get the bad diagnosis from the doctor. What's my question on the other side of that bad diagnosis? Doc, how much time do I have? Right? When I was in the hospital this week, you better believe, every single day when the doctor came in, you got any questions for me? Yeah, how long am I going to be here? Right? 
I want to know what my time is in terms of sitting there. How long am I going to be in that environment? Every scenario we have in which we, you and I, are imprisoned by something, it's always entangled with our time. And time has this peculiar way of controlling our reality. It controls our actions. It controls our attitudes. It controls our behaviors and how we do it, what we're willing to put up with, right? I just don't have what? Time for that. I have time to deal with that right now. I don't have time to go along with that right now. When it comes to our relationships, I'd love to form a new relationship, but I just really don't have the time for you. I just can't invest in that anymore. I, I don't have the time in my life. Even learning, you know, you might want to learn a new skill, you might like that idea, and at the end of the day, you're like, that would be wonderful, but guess what? I don't have the time. We're all imprisoned in this way by time, and even if we'd like to do some of these things, the weight of our struggle in this world, the weight of your struggle in this world, when you think about it, when you think about parenting, when you think about sickness and disease, when you think about all the struggle in our world, it really is an issue of time. How much time do I have left with you? How much time will I be with you? How much time can you invest in my life? How much time can I invest in your life? And you know, this is the season for uh, haunted houses. Anybody here a haunted house person? No, we got, you guys are good. You're sane. I love this. I love, or you're just ashamed to admit it. I don't know which one it is. Those of you who are online, don't feel ashamed. You can admit it if you want to. But I'm not a huge haunted house person, but I had a student at one point in time who was. In fact, he was so crazy, he wanted to go to the worst haunt in all of America. He wouldn't call it a haunted house. It's a haunt, right? It's a haunt. Some of you might know this. It's called the McCamey Manor. It's, it's just a little ways over, I think, in Tennessee. McCamey Manor is crazy, right? It's just absolutely bonkers. You have to sign a 40-page waiver in order to go. A doctor has to sign off to say that you can go. And then you have to have a safe word. In, th- in case things get too crazy, no one has ever finished the McCamey Manor experience. Never. Some of you are like, I wouldn't. No, no you won't. <laughs> Don't even get it. Right? Here's why McCamey Manor is so troubling. They've tapped into this idea of time and imprisonment. They don't tell you how long you're going to be. They don't tell you what the experience, when the experience is going to end. You know, most haunted houses, you're like, oh, I start here, I end here, I see people coming out. In McCamey Manor, you don't know how long you're going to be there. You don't know what you're going to experience. You don't know how long the torture will go on. And that's what makes this place so terrifying. And the truth is, is that's what's terrifying for us in reality. Whenever we face struggles of any type, it comes down to this. How long am I going to deal with it? And if I don't know the answer to that, then I struggle. And the reason that I struggle is because we all know, we don't like to admit it, but time is a limited resource for us. I don't have unlimited time in the world, and I know that, but what makes it even worse is I don't know what I have, right? If you ask me about my bank account, do I have limited resources in my bank account? Absolutely. Do I know how much there are? Yeah, I do. You want some money for me? Well, let me look at my bank account and see how much is there. You want some time for me? I don't know if I will make it till this afternoon, right? Time is a limited resource, and we all know that, but we just don't know how limited it is. We don't know where it ends in our lives, and this is why we're held captive by time. Because we don't see the end. We don't know what's on the other time. And sometimes we feel our imprisonment because outside circumstances are pressing in on us. And other times we live inside of our captivity completely oblivious. Sometimes we just look beyond that time. And it doesn't bother us in any way because there's not outside circumstances pressing in on us or demanding something of our time or taking our control away. But what if we, what if you and I could break free from our captor? What if we could liberate ourselves from that captivity? What if circumstances weren't the thing that determines our level of satisfaction in life? 
You see, Paul establishes that we are all prisoners in life. We are all held in captivity. But he also encourages us with the good news that we don't have to remain in captivity. It doesn't matter what our outside circumstances are like. The inner captivity that you were experiencing in your life doesn't have to be that way. You can escape from that prison. You can find real joy in your life. And this is what he found personally. And this is what he continues in the next verse to say you can have as well. Look at verse 2 as he goes on. He says, grace to you. This is the grace that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ pours out upon all of us in abundance. And peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 3 and 4. He says, and this is, this is the part where he starts to unpack joy. He says, I want to thank God every time that I remember you. My heart is filled with gratitude whenever I think of you, whenever I consider you and the faith that you have, constantly praying with joy. In the midst of my sorrow, in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my imprisonment, he says, I am filled with gratitude to God for you, and I pray on your behalf, not somberly, but with joy, in every one of my prayers for all of you. He himself is filled with a joy, even in the middle of prison, but he's already escaped the real prison in life. And that's why. It doesn't matter what his surroundings look like. Paul has been able to escape that imprisonment that we all feel to time. His surroundings don't take away that joy or lock him up. The news reports don't take that away from him or lock him up. The diagnosis doesn't take that joy away from him or lock him up. Tragedy, heartbreak, grief, it doesn't matter what those are that happen in his life. They can't take away the joy that is released in his life because Paul has already been released from the prison of our life. And so he prays at all times in gratitude and full of joy. The joy that overflows because he and they have been freed by the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the thing that liberates us all from the captivity that we are in. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, "I well let me back up just a little. He says, I'm constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you. And he goes on, because of this, because you share in the gospel with me. You and I share the gospel, the good news. It's in both of us. It's in all of us. It's, it's this liberating reality for us. And you're sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says, look, my environment changed. Where I'm living, my circumstances, the meals are kind of crappy. It's dark in here a lot. I see rats running around all over the place. All of those things have changed. They're different. My comfort level has changed in life. But can I remind you that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, share a freedom that nothing in the world can ever take away. There's nothing that can happen in this world that can take that freedom away. This freedom liberates us from bondage of the timing of our present life. It can liberate you from whatever you're experiencing in your life right now. Rejoice, he says. You don't have to be concerned about the finish line. You see, I know a lot of times that is our reality, right? We're, we're concerned about where we're going to end up. We're concerned about how things are going to work themselves out. If it's, if it's this pandemic, in fact, I know I've heard a lot of you say... I've been one of those to say it. I'm like, I'm just ready for this thing to be over. Right? As a human being, I am looking for the finish line. How will we get through it? How will we get through it all or, or say how we want to? Paul says, rejoice. You don't have to figure that out. He finishes the opening section of this prayer for the, the Philippians by saying this, and it's a beautiful reminder of this reality. He says, I am confident. I am fully confident of this right here. Philippian church the one who began a good work among you 
He began something good. There was a starting line of goodness in your life. He began this good work among you, and he will be the one who will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. As I said a minute ago, it's human nature for all of us to look to the end of all things. We want to see where our lives end up. We want to see where our bank accounts end up. We want to see where our career ends up. We want all of those things. And we, we don't always do this well. We don't always understand this well. But it's natural for us to manage our lives based on the end. We will make decisions about when we retire or when we don't retire. We will make decisions about what we will do in school or not do in school based on what, how we want to end up, where we want to end up how we want our lives to be unpacked. We're always looking for that finish line. We're always wanting to see our projects completed. We're always wanting to reach our goals, accomplish the mission that's set before us. And on the grand scale, you know, I said this a minute ago, we want this world to be changed. In particular, we want the pandemic to end. We want it to be over in this place. On a family scale, for some of you, you're looking at your life right now and you just want to make sure that you live and you work in a way that will help your family in the end. That you'll be able to pass something on to your family in case, you know, something happens. We're looking for that as we go through. But there's something about the world that we're living in right now. And I, you know, I just want to recognize this weight. The world we live in, the struggles that we, we experience collectively, makes it really hard to imagine that the finish line is possible. And, and I say that in light, of, in light of our health concerns and those things that are around us. But I say that more in this broad sense. The fragility of life that has come to us in the context of the pandemic only heightens the reality that it's hard to complete anything. Gosh, I can't, you know, I can't get a burger because I can't get help to work, right? I can't go and get my food. I can't go and do this. I can't go and do that. I, I can't complete the tasks that are in front of me because not only is this health crisis around us, but there's so many other layers of it. And so I just want to live in an environment and recognize the environment that sometimes it feels hard to reach the finish line. And there's something about the world that we're living in right now that makes us think that. And if we keep our eyes locked on the end, when chaos reigns, what happens is it seems like the end is very far out of reach. But Paul says to you and me, there's a different way. There's a different way that you can go. There's a different path that you could follow. You may, be, you may not be able to complete the task in front of you, but there is one who can complete it. You might not be able to do it. You might not be able to finish that that's in front of you. But there is one who started a good work in your life who will complete the good work in your life. And as we receive the gift of God into our lives, we receive that joy that comes from him. Not a joy that we've manufactured, not a joy that we're working for in the end, but one that comes directly from him. And regardless of the seasonal shifts in our lives, God provides us with that joy. Paul found that joy in his prison cell, and we can too. And over the next few weeks, I want to unpack for us, you know, and make this as practical as possible. As we study each chapter of this, of this book, I'm going to try to offer some real practical ways in which you can experience that joy, live into that joy, grow into that joy every day, and I'll guide us in that path. But this morning, that's not where I want to go. This morning, I just want to close in sort of testimony. Right? The, the Apostle James says that, that we are saved through the word of our testimony. And, and I want to close to talk to us a little bit about how God does work. And some of that has to do with how God has, has worked in my life this week. Now, Friday for me was absolutely the lowest day. Thursdays when I went into the hospital with my daughter, Friday was my lowest day. I'd spent all day on Thursday, all night in the hospital, very little sleep. And, and the most frustrating thing, which those of you who have been in this situation know that, 
the most frustrating things is the fact that you can't get a name for what's going on, right? Isn't it crazy how powerful a name can be? Like, you just don't get a name. Like, I know she can't breathe, but why? What's the name of it? What's going on? What's... And all day long, I had that struggle. I didn't get my name. I didn't have that. And I just felt the anxiety rising up inside of me. I was by myself. I was waiting on these test results. I felt the power of the imprisonment around me. I was a prisoner in that tiny little room, and all I could think about and all I could do was to read and to reread this epistle. And I did all day long. I read and I reread. I read and I reread. And about five or six o'clock, the respiratory therapist came in before he left on his shift. And he was a positive man. He'd been positive all day, very upbeat as he came in. Uh, he looked at Eliza one last time, and he didn't adjust her. He just stepped back and he goes, with his hands kind of down, he says, well, she looks pretty good. And you all are blessed, even in the midst of this space. And that for me opened up a small window of opportunity. I said, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that. I've been sitting here reading all day long the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians to try and bring some joy to my, my life. And, and I've just been working through it. He goes, oh, I love that. I love that epistle. He goes, very few people know that Paul was in prison when he wrote that. I go, oh, I know. That's part of the reason I'm reading it. I get it. He goes, yeah, it kind of reminds me of the story of the pastor in Romania, and this gentleman was Eastern European. I don't know if he was Romanian, but it reminds me of the story of the Romanian pastor who spent seven years in a hole, completely isolated from everyone. Most people couldn't survive a week or two, but he spent seven years, and he said, just amazing what God can do. And that was about it. He left the room, and I did what any of you would do. I fact-checked him. <laughs> Is that true? I don't know if that's true or not. I, I did. I was like, Romanian pastor, seven years into a hole. <laughs> and I started seeing this man by the name of Richard Wurmbrand. Richard and his wife, Sabina, some of you know the organization, The Voice of the Martyrs. They're the ones who started that organization. Richard, he died at 91 years of age in 2001, I believe. And um, just after World War II, as a, a young Jewish man, he got converted to Christianity. He became a Lutheran priest, and he started converting communist Russians around him. This was not allowed in Romania against the law and he kept doing it he just kept proclaiming the gospel louder and louder and eventually one day the secret police rolled up at his house grabbed him didn't say a word took him away and hid him in a prison from his family and everyone and he remained there years without any trial and eventually after a few years of being there tortured literally every day in some capacity he would have to sit on a chair with his hands just like this not move not bend his head not bow it not stick his tongue out not breathe heavily, just had to sit there, eyes straight forward. And he would do that for 15, 16 hours a day. And if he didn't do that, then he would be beaten. If he moved a little bit, he would be beaten. After three or four years in prison, they made things worse. I did fact check. It wasn't seven years. It was three years. <laughs> Wrong about that. But he spent three years, the next three years of his life, in a hole, 12 feet down. 12 feet under the ground is where he lived. 
And they had this sort of torture ritual, even though he would be pulled out and beaten every now and then. The torture ritual was that when he was in the room, he was to hear nothing, nothing at all. In fact, the guards would come around him wearing felt socks so that, that he wouldn't hear footsteps. And they would sneak around and they would drop just a tiny bit of food into the room and then they would go on their way. He didn't know if it was day or night. He didn't have any outside light. Three years he would be in there. And you can watch his story online where he actually goes back to the cell and tells us what happened. But in that environment, Pastor Wombrand, he says that he walked back and forth day and night. And there were a few things he did that I think even we see in the, the Apostle Paul. First of all, he built a chess game and he played chess by himself. That's an important part. Always have fun. The second thing he did is in that environment, as he walked back and forth, he would recite scriptures that he had memorized over and over and over again. And all day he would recite these scriptures. And at the end of the day, he would preach a sermon. And he'd care who heard it. He would preach a sermon to himself every single day and he would allow the angels to be his congregation in that environment. And so every day he would do that. And then eventually, he got to this point where he could just tap on the wall and others would start tapping back. And in this prison, 12 feet under the ground, he started finding community and connection. And through Morse code, they communicated with each other. They talked with each other and they shared the gospel with each other and encouragement with one another. And he says, in fact, that eventually a couple of the guards chimed in. And a couple of the guards converted over to Christianity in the context of that environment. In the middle of this hole in the ground, he found himself reciting the good news, finding connection with other people, and practicing joy through this, through this game of chess by himself. And I want to encourage us in this way today. In those moments of struggle in our lives, some of the initial ways that we start to break out is to remind ourselves and to ground ourselves in the good news over and over again. You need to ground yourself in the good news of the gospel that comes to us, to recite it, to memorize it, to put it in your heart and in your mind. And one of the ways that we're going to do that throughout this series, and one, a couple of the ways that I encourage you to do that, is to read this epistle every day. Right, if you, if you start tomorrow and you read a chapter a day, you'll make it through this epistle seven times before we're done with this series. And that's what I encourage you to do. Just start Philippians 1 tomorrow. Just read one chapter. Philippians 2 on Tuesday. Philippians 3 on Wednesday. Philippians 4 on, on Thursday. And then on Friday, start again. And just every day, just read a chapter. And then on a Sunday, when we gather together for about 30 minutes before we gather for service, we're actually going to read the epistle in its entirety out loud together. If you want to come early, you can come early. We'll start doing that about 9.30 on Sundays. But we're going to read through the epistle and just hear it out loud. Commit to ourselves together to soak in God's word and to enable Paul's words to just soak into our hearts and our lives. And then we're going to talk about it. I'm going to come on to Facebook and I'll open a group inside of our uh, Salem members and regular attenders group. And if you want to join, we'll do it at lunch on Wednesday around noon. We'll just be on there for about 15 minutes. We're just going to talk about this. Talk about our experience of reading it. Talk about what God's showing to us in that space. We're going to talk about it together. Because it's important that we not only soak in the good news, but that we soak in community. And that we connect with each other. And that we practice our joy. Find some ways to do the things this week that bring your heart joy. To live into them. Sometimes it's our, our natural go-to to avoid those things. 
in times of struggle. No, I don't wanna do that. That seems selfish. You know, you just wanna sit and commiserate for a minute. I wanna encourage you to practice joy in the context of your imprisonment. Practice those things that give you life in the context of your pain. And it's my hope that as we ground ourselves in, this, in these practices, that you and I can actually practice joy every single day of our life. Would you stand with me as we pray? Gracious God, we thank you so much for the joy that you bring to our hearts and our lives. As we close with one final song today, God, song of praise and honor to you, my prayer is that there's anyone who's gathered here or maybe online that has not experienced the joy of your salvation, that today they might experience it. Spirit of God, do only the work that you can do to implant your grace and your mercy into our lives and to transform us. As we submit ourselves over to you, fill us with the joy of your salvation once more. Draw us into your presence and change us to be more like you every single day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.